You're listening to the King's Place podcast. Presenting music, comedy, spoken word, poetry, and art from around the world. Kingsplace.co.uk Hello and welcome to the King's Place podcast, a monthly podcast full of all the latest news, information and exclusive interviews highlighting the upcoming events at the venue. On this edition we take a final look at some of the performers involved in the third King's Place Festival. This year's festival runs from Thursday the 9th to Sunday the 12th of September. This annual festival neatly packs 100 concerts into just four days. A showcase of everything you've come to expect from King's Place, such as jazz and blues, folk, classical, spoken word, comedy and some slightly more experimental music. Tickets are just £4.50 per concert. More details later in the podcast. So on this edition, we catch up with Guardian editor Alan Rusbridger, who will be talking about how things work behind the scenes at the paper at this year's festival. Eyebrow are a trumpet player, aided by a bank of pedals and effects and a drummer. We caught up with this duo in Bristol to learn more about how their unique sound came about. But first, we caught up with Levon Schillingillian on the phone, the founder of the world-famous String Quartet, to learn more about the series of concerts he's putting together, exploring a Latin American-themed programme. And so, firstly, why this repertoire? Because the Schillingillian Quartet was appointed as the, the ensemble that was uh, going to head a new sistema in Venezuela. There's a very famous and a wonderful orchestra called Simon Bolivar, um, which has toured the world and has been to England. And the the man in charge of this whole system, uh, Maestro Abreu, decided that he would now like to improve the quality of chamber music in Venezuela, and he asked us to uh, take charge of that program. So we have been um, to Venezuela to teach not only the very young ones, but to teach the older ones who then themselves uh, go and work with the young ones. So that's the essence of the Sistema. So as we are involved very much with Venezuela, we thought that we could concentrate, if you like, on Venezuelan music, but also add important other compositions from Latin America. Uh, The important part, a very important part of the festival, of course, is our invitation to the Millennium Quartet, who are a brilliant young quartet from Venezuela, who will be um, sharing the, um, you know, the program with us, as well as other artists, of course. And with the Villa Lobos, it features a choir of cellos. That must be quite a, a, a musical spectacle. Well, I mean, I'm a violinist, but cellists will point it out even better than I can that a choir of cellos has the widest possible range of notes. In other words, the bottom end is very low, and yet they can potentially play 
as high as a violin. So when you have a group of cellos, the distribution of the voices is, is wonderful because you have the dark sound which can be exploited and then you can have the, the top voices singing with the soprano or sounding like violins. I would say it's the, the most diverse and the most beautiful sound. And of course, uh, Villa Lobos, and you do, uh, you know, the smug look on the faces of cellists when they do these pieces uh, is very understandable because they're marvelous, fun to do, and you don't need the violas or the violins, or they don't feel they need it, they just do it on their own. It's a magnificent sound. What else links this music? Is, is it a sense of rhythm? They've got incredible vitality. The obvious word is tango. I mean, we're doing a short piece by Piazzolla uh, called Four for Tango. Um, and the Ginastera piece that the Millennium is playing is incredibly exciting, vital, sort of great rhythms. Um, so I would say that the underlying feeling is of uh, rhythm, vitality, uh, melody. Um, words like criolla come up, uh, romantica come up. So creole, creole music. You have this uh, mixture of the African influence, if you like, of great rhythm. And then you have the, the music that was created in South America, the, the, the tango and all the, the dance sort of rhythms. And the performers and the composers were, of course, very much influenced by this. So if you um, listen to the music, you have this sort of raw, raw vitality, great tunes and great rhythms. And I think that uh, if you couple that with, with the performers, it will be incredibly exciting. All of this music, every one of the programs has got a good mixture. There's one piece that I will mention also. The name is Jazzinho. So they even managed to fit in the jazz element into the South American. Um, and some of it, very, very, very easy to understand, but almost totally unknown. I think that's another important element, that uh, quite a few of these pieces are, are not known. And people will be, I think, will love it when they hear it, because it's so accessible and it's so uh, wonderfully immediate to the listener. The Chilling Gillian Quartet play a series of concerts with repertoire from Villa Lobos, Piazzolla and some other lesser known but equally as amazing composers with a series of guest musicians and ensembles. Check out kingsplace.co.uk for more information and to book your seat. Guardian editor Alan Rusbridger is a very busy man but luckily he's based just next door at King's Place which allowed us to get a rare opportunity to talk to him about the paper. 
And the first question we asked him was, is there such a thing as a typical day? Not at all. It's one of the things I most like about journalism is that when you go in in the morning, you've got no idea what's going to happen. In fact, I've just kept you waiting for half an hour while uh, I deal with uh, breaking news. So, I mean, you couldn't produce a newspaper unless you had some predictable. So, you know, that Wednesday is Prime Minister's question time and you know that such and such a report's going to be released on such and such a day. Um, But you you come in in the morning and you, you have a rough idea of what the ingredients are. And right about this time of day, I'm we're talking at six o'clock in the evening it all gets incredibly messy and things are happening and America's waking up and uh, and the the knack is between six o'clock and nine o'clock to, to get it into some sort of shape for the paper but of course that that ignores the fact that nowadays we publish virtually 24 hours a day because the website is continually going so um, the short answer is no <laughs> And, and today in particular, um, this is probably one of the biggest news days in a very long time with the, the publication of Tony Blair's autobiography. Yes, that, I mean, that, that, that was another very messy thing because it was one of those, it was a story that sort of began at 11 o'clock last night with the, uh, the embargoes over the print edition. Uh, but of, of course, actually, it, always with these things, except with Harry Potter, the, the, the books get out in advance. And so that was a story that really began uh, as a news cycle um, yesterday evening and is going to carry on because I think Andrew Marr is talking to, to uh, Tony Blair tonight. So that's like sort of 24 hours of rolling coverage about a 600-page book which um, you somehow have to gut and read very quickly and make sense of. Uh, in particular to this, uh, this lecture or this introduction that you'll be doing, you'll be talking about how, how journalism works and maybe how people can get, can get involved. Or is, is, it still a, is, is it still a career you think that people should really sort of become part of? Or that... Well, I, I, um, there, there are two views about journalism at the moment. There are, there are some people who are tremendously gloomy and who look at print sales and advertising and think, you know, the game's up really and that... that um, particularly younger people are not going to read newspapers in the future. And the other is to say, oh, come on, stop being so gloomy. Actually, uh, news organisations are, are getting to more people than ever before. The Guardian used to sell 650 copies abroad. Now we have 20 million readers abroad. So I, I, I prefer to be um, intoxicated and dazzled by the possibilities of the new media rather than get terribly gloomy. But that, of course, uh, part, partly how you define whether you're going to be gloomy or excited it, it depends on who owns you and what kind of structures you've got behind you. So that brings in a whole debate about proprietors, about state funding, about the kind of trust ownership that The Guardian has. And so it becomes a very interesting and complex subject, and that's what I'm hoping to explore. From what you're saying, it must be a balance then between the, the excitement or the, the day-to-day of doing the job and then obviously having the responsibilities of, of the overview of the paper. Yeah, the thing about journalism is that uh, notoriously short-term so um, you're thinking about your next story. You go home at night, and uh, you you then you could have another story tomorrow. And some somebody in the organisation has to try and think a bit longer term. And I see that as my job. So um, uh, in as much as anybody can think long term about future trends, uh, you have to have a few people who are saying, well, it's not just about tomorrow's paper. It's it's what's going to be happening in a year, two years. I met somebody from Google the other day, and I said, look, we're we're in the middle of drawing up a medium term plan and he smiled and said at Google we we don't have any plans that go that are further out than six months and that's as far as we can see so I think you know when when the digital world in which we're we're existing is such a fast-moving environment it's a mistake to try and see five years ahead you're lucky if you can see five months ahead.
I suppose the most recent innovation that, that may make a significant difference is something like the iPad. You know, do you think the age we're coming to age now where we will really back away from the physical and go to the digital kind of paper uh completely yes i mean, I mean look at the up- uptake of the iphone which i think was the most most popular device new bit of new technology in in history and the ipad is not selling as fast um, but i think anybody who's played with one for any length of time sees the incredible possibilities for reading text moving pictures sound um uh, all in one device books graphics and and the possibilities of creating content as well as just consuming it. So I think the iPad and the five or six other readers that are supposed to be uh, about to release uh, to the market, I think that's going to have a, a, a big impact on what we do. Um, for people who haven't been here, or maybe maybe some people maybe have walked past, but the uh, you usually have this amazing display of photos up in, in in your in your reception area downstairs. And I mean, I think the Guardian does have that reputation for having stunning or very eye-catching photography. You know, is that something you're very proud of? Well, when we built our new presses in 2004 5, um, we used this Berliner format, which is a, a European, very common in, in, in Europe. And, uh, and I used the centre page to, there to just produce a stunning picture of the day as a counterpoise to all the text that we were using elsewhere. And these presses are, are really fabulous presses. They're the state of art modern presses. Um, and it's extraordinary the, the kind of quality that you can now print on the run. And I think that has helped ge- um, generate a, a, a reputation for, for photography, which we carried on into the iPad. Our first iPad app was a photographic app that just had the photograph of the day. Um, and that was held up by Steve Jobs when he launched the iPad, saying, look, this is, this is the kind of cool thing you can do with apps. But I think it's very important to use photography as well as words because the cliche that a, a, a really good picture is worth a thousand words you can you can achieve a, 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 an impact and a directness and an emotional um, effect with a with a really good photograph that, that is equal to anything you can do with words Last on the podcast today, we travel all the way to Bristol to catch up with the trumpet player Pete Judge and the drummer Paul Wiggins, also known as Eyebrow. Um, here I am in Bristol with uh, Eyebrow on a um, moderately sunny day uh, by the river with some seagulls ahead, a uh, train a little way in the distance and a bridge over the river. Um, so first of all, uh, first half of Eyebrow. Hello. And your name? Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah, uh, my name's Pete. Pete Judge. And I'm trumpet. And the second half? I'm Paul Wigans and I'm the drummer. What is eyebrow? What is eyebrow? Other than a, a hairy thing above your eye. It's a one of few drum and trumpet duos that, to my knowledge, exist anyway. And Paul and I have worked together in a couple of things before in some slightly larger context and we'd enjoyed working together and had kind of pushed around the idea of doing something that was a bit more minimal, a bit more, bit more hypnotic, a bit more long form, I think. Is that the best way of putting it? I think it was kind of, we, we'd met each other and we just, we, like I say, we, as Pete says, we worked together in various other projects and then we thought we'd like to do something together and it didn't matter what we played. It was more like we just thought we, we just liked each other. It was great and we recorded it and out of that one evening of recording, we actually eventually managed to work out pieces for what became our first album last year so so yeah there's a kind of alchemy for want of a better word as long as that doesn't remind people of live dire straits albums that um that was very pleasing yeah and and we we're easy it's easy it's an easy combination of personalities to work together and i think we both bring very different influences and backgrounds to it as well there's no guitarists or lead singers 
That's the other advantage. <laughs> do, you, do you ever miss within that that mixture, sort of uh, the guitar or the bass or the or, or the uh, some other element? Are you, are you quite happy sonically? Yeah, because it's a real challenge. Because it's only us two, and you know, you, each one of us is making half the sound, and that's you know that's putting pressure on yourself to come up with something good you know so yeah and with with obviously the, all the, the pedals and effects you use again it must maybe it's taste but there's a certain level of knowing when to you know add an extra layer or to just cut it back down to just a, sim- a simple line is is that something that you've just learned with time or, or again through this process of eyebrow you've kind of gained a bit more knowledge and understanding i i think both really uh i mean i've been i have been using the pedals in different contexts for a long time but being the only instrument providing melody and harmony has forced me to use them in a particular way in this band. And, and I think you're right, all the time we're, we're trying to strip back because there is this orchestral possibility and it's too easy for it to be a kind of cheap trick of overlayering and I'm always trying to use less. And, and uh, you know, there's the small selection of pretty crusty stomp boxes that I've got. Some of them I'll use for 30 seconds in a gig and that's it. So anyone who's coming along to Eyebrow for the first time, say they might might come and experience you at King's Place and have only read a little bit about you, what is your ideal reaction to, to your music, or if you, if you have one? Any reaction that isn't a non-reaction, if that makes any sense. There was a bloke who saw us do a gig last week who came up to me at the end and said, yeah, yeah, that was great. When it first started, I just thought, Brian Eno gone wrong. I don't think I can face this. But you won me round. And and that's a lovely reaction. <laughs> I rather like that. I think there's a, there's a kind of uh, serenity, if that's the right word, to what we're doing, even when we're at our most frantic. I think there's something... We're not... Neither of us fear melody. I think we, we're not afraid to be beautiful. But uh, we're not afraid of being of being very tonal, of being very melodic, and uh, even in an unsettling way. I think we we have thought at times that our film our music is quite sort of filmic, which is sort of a bit of a cliche. But when you're playing stuff, it just floats along, you know. But um, I'm quite a fan of films where stuff just sort of happens, and you don't quite know what's going on, and then it just ends. And I think I like those kind of things where it isn't it isn't a kind of you're not following a plot line and there's an ending, you know, and then our music is more like the kind of films I like where you sort of think it's kind of interesting and then it just sort of ends and you go, oh, right, OK. And, uh, yeah, I think our music's that kind of filmic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Eyebrow play on Saturday the 11th of September as part of Arctic Circle's Outer Circle series of concerts, celebrating some of the brilliant musicians and bands coming out of Bristol at the moment. Not to be missed. You've been listening to the King's Place podcast. The events we've been talking about are all in the third King's Place Festival, which runs from Thursday the 9th to Sunday the 12th of September. A hundred concerts in just four days, a showcase of jazz and blues, folk, classical, spoken word, comedy and experimental music. Tickets are just £4.50 per concert, with discounts available through the telephone box office on multiple ticket purchases. So please visit our website, kingsplace.co.uk, for more information about any of the events you've heard and to book tickets. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the King's Place podcast. Presenting music, comedy, spoken word, poetry and art from around the world. 
kingsplace.co.uk.